invite you to turn to our scripture passage for today. We're continuing on in our series through the book of Luke, and we are now at Luke chapter 3, verses 1 to 20. Luke 3, 1 to 20. So starting in verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother, Philip, tetrarch of Eturia, and Traconitus, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to the son to John, son of Zechariah in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. God, John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized to him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children of Abraham. The ax is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. And this is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that uh, you would speak to us today, Lord, Um, You know the heart of every single person here, and we pray, Lord, that you would take your living and active word, and by the power of your Spirit, you would use your word to make us new and build us up in Christ Jesus, so that every one of us here would leave transformed by the power of your Spirit for our good. Uh, Lord, only you can do this, and we pray that you would. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, uh, probably a number of you know that I've been working. We moved to a new house about a a year and a half ago, just down from our old house, and I've been working on finishing our basement. 
in that house uh, and it's taken me the last nine months. It's consumed all of my life. Every night I've been working on uh, building things or fixing things, putting stuff together. And if you've been here for extra long, you will know that about seven years ago, I finished the basement in the house we were living to before this one. And apparently I hadn't suffered enough. Uh, This basement was a much bigger project but I am officially finished and I am retiring. (laughs) I am never doing another basement. All right. (laughs) Well, when running all of the electrical wires, I wanted to test them uh, before hanging the drywall because if you've ever done this, nothing is more discouraging than having perfectly finished drywall and needing to cut a hole in it to fix, say, a nicked electrical wire. And so with the help of a neighbor, uh, he and I one night uh, took all the wires and in every little outlet box, uh, we used wire nuts and we strung all the wires together going from box to box until we got to the end of the electrical circuit. And there I quickly added an outlet. And then I would go to the main sub panel and flip it on and then put my electrical tester in that last outlet and wait to see what light popped up. And if it was a green light, It was so joyous. Everything had been wired correctly. It meant that the electricity was going from the sub panel through all the wires. They were connected and it was coming out at the outlet at the end. And that little green light was like a Christmas light of joy. And we did that for every circuit in the basement and for all the lights. And see that light that lit up, let me knew that all the wiring was correct. And and it was so good to see the fruit of all of that labor of running hundreds and hundreds of feet of copper wire all throughout the basement and to see it coming and working correctly. The fruit of the labor was seen in that light popping up. And I think there's a similar principle in our passage today. John the Baptist says that you know you are truly repentant. All the wiring for repentance is correctly connected when it leads to some sort of change in your life. The tester of true repentance lights up green when there's, the ref- when there's the fruit of repentance, some sort of change. You see, sometimes we ask for forgiveness just to make ourselves feel better. Or maybe we're trying to diffuse a, a tense situation. You say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm sorry, trying to bring the, the anger down a little bit. Maybe you feel pressured to say sorry or to repent, right? There's the non-apology apology that politicians are all masters of. But true repentance leads to some sort of change. Now, you're probably asking, well, what kind of change? Or what if I screw up again the next day? Because sometimes it's really hard to change. Or, or I don't feel like I can change. And we're going to look at those questions as we walk through our passage Uh, and hopefully answer them. But we're working through this series in the book of Luke uh, that we've called The King Has Come, because one of the main themes we see in Luke is is this announcement that a new king has come into town, and his name is Jesus, and he is building his kingdom, and, and we are getting to see what that kingdom looks like here. And the question I want you to ask yourself this morning is, are you producing the fruit of repentance? Are you producing the fruit of repentance? And we're going to look at this three ways. First, preparing the way. And then second, proof of repentance. And then third, the power to change. So first, preparing the way. 
If you've been with us, you know that the first two chapters of the book of Luke introduce us to baby Jesus and then Jesus as he's growing up. And now some 18 years pass between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. Jesus is fully grown. And Luke lets us know the date by telling us who is in charge. Tiberius Caesar had been uh, ruling for 15 years. If you remember at the beginning, Caesar Augustus was in power. He ruled when Jesus was born. And Tiberius Caesar is now the successor, and he is in charge. There's also been a turnover at the local government with a new governor, Pontius Pilate, which that name may sound familiar. He is actually the ruler that later on will have Jesus sentenced to death. And John the Baptist, who's related to Jesus and a few months older than him, has also fully grown, and now he's engaged in his work. He is walking around the countryside telling people to repent, to receive a baptism of repentance. Now, baptism is one of those things that we don't know exactly where it emerged from. At some point after the Old Testament and before the New Testament, uh, religious people in uh, the Holy Land would undergo these baptisms. It seems to probably have come out of, in the Old Testament, there were ceremonial washings that the priests and others would do to symbolically wash uh, themselves of their impurities and their sins, and it seems like that is kind of a continuation of that idea. And so John the Baptist is going around the countryside, and whoever he sees, he tells them to repent for their sins. And those people who then feel convicted of their sins, they would come forward and confess their sins. And to show this change in their life, he would baptize them to mark this transition in their life from their old way to the new way. But probably John starts to see some of the same people coming again and again, or people that he knows from, you know, another village start showing up. And so this ministry of John is described in verse 4 of Luke, where he says, as it is written, and then he quotes from the book of Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in and every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. So what we see here is that a core aspect of John the Baptist's ministry is about making trails, making a path. Now, I want you to see the link here, because it's not immediately clear that Luke is linking John's proclamation of repentance, telling people to repent, to this work of God's messenger in Isaiah 40, what Luke quotes from, whose job it is, is to make a good path from God to the people. Now, I know a lot of you like hiking. When you go for a hike, you usually find a trail, right? We take trails for granted. It is way harder to go on a hike if you don't have a trail. Uh, last year, when I had taken our oldest two girls backpacking, uh, we were, I was planning to go to this trailhead that we get to the trailhead, and there's big signs at the trailhead saying, no overnight parking, which is a problem if you're planning to leave the car there for a couple days. And so we decided to drive further down the road to a place where we could park at a different trailhead. The problem was I had a very nice route for what we would do and how far we would go each day. And because we had to park at a different trailhead, I had to come up with a new route. And if we were going to do the the trail or the route that I'd planned on, 
we were going to have to walk something uh, like 12 miles on the second day of backpacking. Now, my girls are strong, but that was too much for an 11 and an 8-year-old. So I decided, how can I shorten the path? And there was a section there where there were two trails that were only uh, separated by like a quarter mile. And if we followed them, you go all the way down here and then back up. And I thought, well, hey, why don't we cut across these, uh, between these two trails and we'll cut off like four miles of hiking, all right? And so I looked and I read the map and I could see where we're gonna go and there's a big ridge, right? And I was thinking, okay, this is gonna be tough, but I think we can do it. So I gave the girls a little pep talk before we go. I said, okay, this is gonna be challenging, right? It's gonna be slow going. You're gonna want to give up at some point. Don't give up. You're gonna get scraped up. Don't cry about it, right? We're gonna climb over this ridge and get to the other side and it's gonna take us a while. And I showed them on the map. The time that it would normally take us to go like this far on the map, it's probably gonna take that same amount of time for us to go this far because there's no trail. And sure enough, we start climbing up over the ridge and I carry their packs and we kind of trade off who carries uh, what pack. We get scraped up, we battle through scrub oak, scrub oak thickets, we slip down, you know, scree slopes. And then finally, the best sight on that whole trip was the trail on the other side of the ridge, right? And we gave thanks for trail uh, builders for the rest of the trip. And sure enough, it took us about an hour to go that far on the map, which if we were on a trail, we could have gone you know, a solid two miles. Trails are amazing things, right? And John the Baptist's job is to make a trail that connects people to God. That's what his job is. That's why this passage is quoted from Isaiah. It speaks about filling in the valleys, mountains made low, crooked roads straight. John is creating a trail that will allow people to see God and his salvation. So do you see that there's a link between this baptism of repentance and preparing the way for the Lord? Repentance, we could say, is like a path that connects God to you. Repentance is the way that you get connected into God. Now, this is often kind of the opposite of how we think about it. If you think, how will I get closer to God? How can I get God's attention? We think, well, I need to do a bunch of things. I need to try hard. I need to do this or this or that. I need to achieve these certain you know, religious goals or do these religious activities. But what we see here is repentance brings you closer to God than any of your good deeds ever could. Right? Trying to get to God through your good deeds, through your actions, is like trying to bushwhack through the Amazon rainforest to get to China. <laughs> it's never going to work, no matter how much you wear yourself out. And so this brings us then to our second point, the proof of repentance. Now, we don't have a lot of John the Baptist's words in Scripture, but we have enough of his words to get a sense of his personality. Verse 7, these crowds are coming to John. As I said, probably people that he's seen before, right? Maybe people are showing up every week uh, to uh, be baptized again or, or whatever. We don't know exactly, but he sees them. And what does he say? You brood of vipers, <laughs> who, warned you of the, the, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? 
Now, you know, we have uh, greeters at our worship service, right? When you arrive at church, someone hands you a bulletin. Uh, they say, hi, we're glad you're here, right? But imagine if you walk through our door and one of the greeters looks at you and says, hey, you spawn of a snake, who told you what time our worship service was? <laughs> we would not put John the Baptist on the welcome team. <laughs> and most people would be turning away. And yet what is interesting is these insults here don't keep people from coming to John. And why is that? Well, maybe it's because repentance is one of the few times we are actually honest with ourselves. And I don't know about you, but I spend a lot of time trying to convince myself that I'm not that bad, right? Or that this thing that I did that was kind of in this gray area, well, no, I was actually justified. You don't need to feel bad about that. A lot of mental energy for me, I think for probably all of us, goes in to serving as something like a press secretary to defend whatever you, things you've done, whatever things I've done, and put enough spin on those things that you've done so that it sounds like the most logical and best thing that you could have done was this thing that you did, even though anyone else would say, no, that was a dumb thing to do, right? And repentance, though, is where you stop making excuses, you start being honest with yourself, and you say, you know what? I screwed up. I'm screwed up. And instead of spinning all these plates in your life where you're trying to make yourself look better than you are to keep the self-deception going, repentance frees you from it all. It allows you to stop wearing yourself out and to discover that joy of honesty. Yeah, I've got a problem. Yeah, I have screwed things up. Yeah, I'm not as good as I look. And so people keep coming to John to repent, to be free from that. But what we see is that not all the people that come to repent are genuine with their repentance. You know, I think sometimes we can like repentance just for the sake of repentance. It, it feels good to get this stuff off your chest, but then tomorrow you don't think about it and you do all the same things over again without any remorse. I think we can become addicted to repentance where we just like to say all the you know, bad things we've done to confess it to someone else and then feel like that's good enough. Sometimes apologies can be more for the sake of de-escalating a situation than actually your heart feeling broken by the things you've done. But tomorrow you'll do that very same thing without giving any thought to it. And so John sees these people who are coming and acting repentant, but he knows that it's not heartfelt. The next day, they just go back to living like nothing ever happened. And so John says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. You know the wiring of your repentance is correct when you see it lead to some sort of change in your life. And then he says, and don't go just saying to yourselves, but we have Abraham as our father. People often get involved in religious activities simply because it's part of their culture. And this is the religion everyone practices here. So, you know, of course we go to this service or that service. And this is the religion my parents and their parents practice, so this is what I am. Abraham was the founder of the Jewish 
religion. And so it was very easy for these Jews, these descendants of Abraham, to say, well, God loved Abraham. God made promises to Abraham, so we're God's chosen people. We don't need to worry about what we do. Abraham's in our blood. But they miss that God cares about what is in your heart more than what's in your blood. And it's easy to go to church because that's what your family does or to be involved in church activities because it gives you some social connection and some friends, and yet to be completely lost when it comes to God. With every single generation, the faith must be renewed. Verse 9 shows us that dead trees, no matter how big they are, no matter how many generations they've stood there for, dead trees, if they don't produce fruit in this season, they're worthless. You cannot rest on the faith of your parents. You need a faith that penetrates your own heart and brings change in your own life. And so the crowd asked probably the same question that you asked. Well, what does that change look like? What does that fruit look like? What should we do? John says anyone with two shirts should share one to the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. This is one of these passages that it's really hard for me to know what what do you make of this passage, right? On one hand, it's easy for us to kind of nuance it in such a way that it doesn't even demand anything of you. On the other hand, it would be easy to make it say more than it is, uh, which would be just as wrong. But notice here that John the Baptist says this is the general fruit of repentance, right? They say, What should we do? And this is his immediate thing that he tells the crowd, a bunch of people. Now, certainly some people in the crowd struggled with greed, but probably not everybody. That's not what every single person was going there to repent of. And yet, what we see here, even when John gives some specific things to the tax collectors and the soldiers, the fruit of repentance maybe looks a little different than what we would think it looks like. He's saying the fruit of, the rep- of repentance will often look like growing love for your neighbor. And when you think of true repentance and bringing change, so often what we think of is, okay, I screwed up, I did this thing again, so tomorrow if I'm really repentant, I'm not going to do it again. And you know what? And that's a good thing. We want to see that kind of one-to-one growth, but you all know it doesn't work that way. Right? Some sins we will struggle with our entire life. Change is depressingly hard. I don't know about you, but I can get discouraged by how easy it is to fall back into old ways. And does that mean my repentance wasn't valid? Well, hopefully over time, over the decades, the trend line is moving up. But there's a whole lot of volatility in between, of up and down and up and down. But I think it would be a mistake to think that the fruit of repentance that John is talking about here is simply that you stop doing those things that you were struggling with. That's part of it. That's a good thing. That's a good goal. But it is so much broader than that. True repentance will bring change, but it might not bring the specific change that you're looking for. True repentance, though, will always lead you to loving others more. And why is that? Because at the root of any sin, if we boil it down to its essence, all sin is either a lack of loving God or a lack of loving other people. And so true repentance might not bring that immediate change in that area that you're really struggling with. Hopefully, you will see change. 
But that ground is hard sometimes, and it takes a lot of tilling to break it up and let plant, and, uh, so that plants can grow there. But as you do that work of tilling the soil of your heart, what you will see is it starts to change the entire ecosystem so that plants and fruit begin to spring in the places maybe you weren't expecting it. There are going to be other places in your life where things blossom. In general, you're going to find yourself more loving and generous to others. And I think that's how we can discern the difference between true and false repentance. False repentance leads to self-righteousness. Because you're still focused on yourself. You're focused, oh, look how good I'm repenting. Look how good I'm working at fighting the sin. Look how good I am at being honest with myself. But true repentance leads to a generous and loving heart towards others. And if I've been forgiven this much by God, how can I not forgive other people? Are you holding on to the things that you have? Or are you showing generosity? Are you hesitant to help other people? Because I don't know if they deserve it. They don't live up to the standards that I think they should be living for. You might not have understood the heart of true repentance and forgiveness because you've missed the grace in there. You've only known a self-righteous repentance, which in the end just makes you feel better about yourself. John tells the tax collectors, don't require any more taxes than you're required to take. These Jewish tax collectors were, were seen as traitors, as sellouts to the government. They were agents of Caesar who went throughout the various towns, you know, some of them their hometowns, and they extorted money from people to finance Caesar's pet projects, to finance his wars, and so often they would add a nice little processing fee on top of it to line their own pockets. And John doesn't tell them, oh, you guys need to quit your job, you're in a bad business, hey, go do something else. John says, no, you just don't use your position for your own enrichment. Love others in your work by doing what is right and what is fair, not just using your work to let yourself get ahead. John then looks to these soldiers. He says, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. On my first uh, trip over to Kenya, I was temporarily detained by a police officer who was wanting a bribe. And this sort of thing is so common around the world for those who are in power to use that power, use that authority for their own enrichment. And when everybody is doing it, it becomes so much part of the culture that no one feels bad about it. And these soldiers could easily use their authority, their power. They would sometimes work with the tax collectors to put a little bit more muscle behind that extortion. And then they would also charge a processing fee all by taking advantage of those that didn't have much. And again, John doesn't tell them, oh, you need to quit your job and do something better. No, he says, you need to live as a Christian in your job. You need to love your neighbor in your work. I think it's interesting. It doesn't mean that Christians need to you know, only be kind of concentrated in certain fields where it's easy to see where your work is helping or it's you know, doing this or that. No, Christians should be in all kinds of fields and setting an example of what it looks like to love others in that particular work. When we talk about loving our neighbor, I think we get the idea of being generous, sharing what we have. 
It's a lot harder to do it. But have you considered that one of the greatest ways in which you will love your neighbor is in your job? And if you consider the amount of time that you spend working in that job, it will be one of the most significant ways in which you can love your neighbor. Whatever your job is, whatever your calling is, right? Whether it's to be an engineer or a mom or an Amazon driver, assembly line worker, a nurse or other healthcare professions, what does it look like to work honestly in that job to not use it for your own advantage, but to use it to serve other people and love your neighbor. Right? In one sense, every single job is a form of loving your neighbor. It should be doing something that improves their life, either by not taking advantage of them or by giving them some sort of good or service that makes their life better. And this brings us then to our third point, the power to change. John's causing such a stir with all these people coming to him. They start to wonder, is this the Messiah we've been waiting for? And so to quench that rumor, John says, one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit in fire. John gave this outward baptism, but he's saying Jesus will bring an internal baptism one that washes you from the inside out. And we see the fulfillment of that baptism in Acts chapter 2, the kind of second volume of Luke's work, where the first Christians are gathering together for this worship service in this room, and it says there in Acts 2, they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them, and all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak other tongues as the Spirit enabled them, right? So this fulfillment of what John has said is coming has happened. And I said this before, but the language there in Acts 2 is the very same language that is used to describe temple dedication services in the Old Testament, and now what we have in the New Testament is another temple dedication service, but it's not for a building, but for a group of people that have gathered together to worship. And what's the significance of that? That God's presence is no longer confined in a building, but it is manifest in his people. That the dwelling place of God on this earth is not in some thing made by man, but it is in the people of God who have gathered together to worship him. It means that God's people have been made as holy as that inner room in the temple. And you see, you want your life to change. You want to have fruit of repentance in your life. You want to be able to live the way that God had made you. What you need is something stronger than just an outward washing with water. You need the transforming holy presence of Christ inside of your life. You need your heart, your body to become the dwelling place of God. And just as he dictated how all the furniture in the temple would be set up, he will begin to rearrange the furniture in your life so that it looks more and more like God wants it to look like. And how do you get that? It's not through trying so hard. It's not through doing all these things. It's through repentance. Saying, I've screwed up. I'm never going to be good enough. I'm, I, I can't change on my own. And that posture of true humility 
is like a window for the power and the presence of God to come into your life and start to do that work that only he can do. You need to let his light into your life. You need to stop hiding things in the darkness. Uh, Kierkegaard wrote, much that you are able to keep in the darkness, you first get to know by opening it to the knowledge of the all-knowing one. Much that you're able to keep in the darkness, you first get to know by opening it to the knowledge of the all-knowing one. What are those things that you've been hiding in the darkness? What are those things that you keep pushed back in the very back corner of the closet that you don't want to admit is lurking back there? What is it you're trying to hide from other people? Where is it you're still lying to yourself? Repentance lets that light of the all-knowing one into your life to start doing that work of cleaning out all the cobwebs, getting rid of all the filth, rearranging things and making them beautiful. See, that is what confession is. And confession, true confession, takes your eyes off of yourself and off all your failures and points them to the risen Christ who has made you and who loves you and knows how you work better than you do. And that faith that you have in confession is like a path that connects you to God so that you become united to Christ and everything that is in Christ becomes yours. Petrus van Maastricht puts it this way, Christ lives in us and takes possession of all our faculties in such a way that in all things and in all times and everywhere, Christ's humility, obedience, holiness, and righteousness flourish and shine forth, and that Christ's life in all these ways is made manifest in us. Isn't that beautiful? Don't you want that? To have Christ's life, his obedience, his holiness, his righteousness flourish inside you so that you become a tree that is producing fruit in all seasons. To be a Christian is to be united to Christ, to have his life-giving presence, his life-giving water feeding your soul, tilling the soil, planting seeds in your heart so that you become the most beautiful tree there is. So give yourself to him. Stop hiding in the darkness. Humble yourself and repent and let his light shine into your soul. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to have this true gospel humility. Lord, every one of us in some ways has portions of our life that we keep in the dark. Lord, we are so easy to repent of the things that are easy for us to acknowledge while ignoring the things that we're trying to ignore about ourselves. Lord, it's easy for us to have self-righteous repentance that only leads us to being puffed up and thinking we're better than everybody else. But Lord, lead us to repentance that causes us to love others more. Lord, take us out of that courtroom where we're always thinking about what we're doing. 
and start giving us the joy that is found in looking to Christ alone. Revive our spirits. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.